Hello everyone, Hisashiburi. This is Jean and welcome back to the EcoFlow podcast. What a long time. It's almost been a year now since I last posted anything here on this podcast. Last year I've been quite busy with applying and preparing for my grad school interview. And I've also been taking calligraphy classes twice a week, taking some time off the grid, spending time in nature, hiking, swimming, and just doing more casual reading and writing. Just a quick update on my side. I made it into the Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University for the upcoming cohort. And we'll be starting my official classes this coming August, hopefully in person, if the global situation permits. During this absence, I've also recorded two presentations for students at Tokyo University in Japan. So a friend of mine, Sylvie, is a professor at Tokyo teaching cross-cultural communication. And she invited me twice during the past two semesters to share my experiences with her students. And I'm very honored and delighted to be invited. So today I'll be releasing the first presentation that I gave here on my podcast titled Culture Hacking. And the original presentation is actually on YouTube and It has both videos and images embedded there. So if you want a full presentation experience, I highly recommend that you check it out there. But if you don't mind just the audio version, do listen on and enjoy. The title of my presentation is on hacking culture. I use the word hack because it's a very hip word to describe an effective way to master something, and in this case, culture. I would like to start this presentation with a quote from my favorite Japanese philosopher and samurai, Miyamoto Musashi, who wrote in his book Gorin no Sho, The Book of Five Rings, that it is difficult to understand the universe if you only study one planet. In other words, it's difficult to understand the world if you only know one culture. Worst of all, a lot of people don't even know their own culture or identity to begin with. Just to give you a quick introduction about myself, my name is Jin Yang Lim, or sometimes known as Sharap Jin on my social media. I'm a Malaysian Chinese who studied in Waseda University, Japan, and Peking University, China. Now I'm currently a social entrepreneur, martial artist, yoga and mindfulness teacher, environmentalist, and a podcaster. You can find more about my information on my website, Sharap Jin. S-H-E-R-A-B-J-I-N dot com and I'm sure you'll get to know bits and parts of me along this presentation. When asked to give this presentation, I reflected much on my own journey and came up with a model on hacking culture, which takes sim- four simple steps. And all you have to remember is OI and UI. O-I-U-I. O stands for observation. I stands for immersion. U stands for understanding and I stands for integration. So when we're exposed to a new culture, it's usually when we're traveling and we see or hear things that are new to us. A lot of people stop at this level, and it's a shame that many took it for granted and perhaps never even paid attention to the details of a local culture when they're traveling. It's usually when we move to a new place and live there that we get to immerse ourselves in the local culture. Of course, you also need to converse with people and practice deep listening. And so I believe language learning 
it's important to learn about a new culture. Once you immerse yourself in a culture, you need to understand the reason, the why behind people's actions, behaviors, and way of living. So you think, analyze, ask questions, read books, study, and discuss with the local community. And then you reflect on what you learned in order to integrate applicable lessons and values into your own life. I believe this is the ultimate goal of culture hacking, to grow, make meaningful connections with other people, and contribute or share something with others. Before I move on to tell you my own story of oi and ui, observing, immersing, understanding, and integrating cultures, I would like to explain a little bit more about my own background. Who am I? I was born in a multiracial country in Southeast Asia called Malaysia. From a young age, I was exposed to many different races, Malay people, Indians, Chinese, and a fusion of these cultures. My great-grandparents were from Southern China in Fujian and Chaoyang, and they migrated south to Hong Kong, then Thailand before settling down in Penang, Penanto in Japanese, a small island in Malaysia. From a young age, I spoke Taiwanese at home, Mandarin Chinese and English with my friends, and Malay when I'm out in the society. I was exposed to traditional Chinese culture from a very young age. My family was very much into tea, and I started training in traditional martial arts when I was 13. My education was kind of a mix of Eastern and Western pedagogy, as I went to a Chinese elementary and middle school, then switched over to a Canadian international high school. I would say I was very lucky to experience both a Confucian style and a Socratic method of teaching. The former is more common among Asian countries such as in Japan, in which a teacher imparts his or her knowledge to the class, while the latter constitutes more of a discussion-based setting where the teacher is merely a facilitator. There are both pros and cons in both systems, and the method of teachings are very much rooted in different cultures. When I was in high school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study in university. However, in 2013, something changed the course of my life. During the last year of my high school, I joined a humanitarian trip to Fukushima, Japan, to volunteer at an evacuation center in Iwaki-ken, which gave me an invaluable opportunity to immerse myself in a foreign culture. It all began with an eye-opening observation. It was two years after the devastating Tohoku earthquake, and for the first time in my life, I felt so close to death. This land where I was standing at was once a vibrant city, but everything was destroyed within hours. More than 15,000 people were killed instantly, swept away by the huge tsunami waves that came rushing in at the speed of an airplane. It taught me a lot about the impermanence of life, the importance of appreciating every moment of life, and the need to cherish the people we love. There's a lot that I learned from Japan during those two weeks. About crisis management, the measures taken by the people and the government, there was a lot of controversy related to the way the government handled the issue, especially in relation to the nuclear meltdown, which I won't go into, but there's a lot that I do admire about the Japanese people here in general. The survivors were doing their best to recover from their loss of loved ones, and volunteers from all over Japan flocked to Fukushima to help them. We listened to a local activist and Zen priest, Koyu Abe-san, who was then organizing programs to plant sunflowers to absorb radiation, as well as group cleaning 
in the city to remove radiation particles that are trapped in dust, which he then kept in the backyard of his temple because no one knew where and how to dispose of them. I was very much moved by his compassion and selflessness, and also learned a lot about the value of kizuna, or interconnectedness, and forged a deep connection with many Japanese friends. Among them, Koya Matsuka-san encouraged me to study in Japan and later on became my foster father and grandfather when I decided to apply to Waseda University. Fukushima transformed my approach to facing a foreign culture as I turned from being an onlooker to becoming a participant and an interactor. I realized that we can learn, grow, and make meaningful connections with people from other cultures. The four stages of culture hacking never ends. After coming to Waseda, I started learning Japanese from scratch, and during the weekends I would travel to Yokohama to learn Aikido from Seiko Ito-sensei, whom I met in Fukushima and became a really close disciple of. In this dojo, I learned the art of Bushido and the Reigi, or ethics of traditional Japanese. I also took up Kudo and horse riding at school and lived with a foster family, an 80-year-old Obachang, who over time has become someone very close to me. In the School of International Liberal Studies, SEALS, I had the privilege of taking a wide range of classes. One of the professors in Waseda, Professor David Hawley, was a retired American journalist who had lived in many countries including China, Korea, Russia, India, and Japan. And his stories of living and reporting events from those countries of different cultures have inspired me in many ways. After taking the class with him on Chinese politics, I decided to study abroad in China and together with 16 other students from Waseda, we joined a double degree program in Beijing for a year, studying international politics during my junior year. As an overseas Chinese, it was my first time visiting China. And even though I speak Mandarin and my roots are Han Chinese, the culture here in the North is so different in many ways. I spend a lot of time learning, observing, and immersing myself in this new setting. China is huge, and everywhere you go, people act differently and speak in various accents or dialects. In a public lecture, I met Scott Rizal, a Stanford professor who spoke about the problems faced by rural children in China, such as having lower IQs compared to city kids and having a higher tendency to drop out from junior high school. Why is that so? Could culture, lifestyle, or social behavior contribute to this? Professor Rizal runs the Rural Education Action Program, known as REAP. And according to his team's research, after examining various factors such as nutrition, health problems, and school education, they found out that one of the major contributing factors to a lower cognitive function is the lack of interaction between rural babies and their caretakers, as compared to city kids. When the baby is two years old, the baby's IQ is set, or mostly set, for life. This is in accordance with the thousand-day hypothesis, which suggests that our IQs are developed during this formative period of time. Many rural kids are known as left-behind children because their parents work in the city and they're taken care of by their grandparents. I found out here that there's a huge correlation between social culture, economy, geography, and history. Everything seems interconnected. Inspired by Professor Rizal, I enrolled in his class, and upon finishing my studies at Peking, I participated in his RIP internship, in which I joined a group of his students traveling around Shanxi province, conducting research on parents, and carrying out daily tasks on babies to measure their IQs. We were first trained to conduct the tasks, 
and then dispatched to rural villages and migrant communities. Each of us carried a 10-kilogram bag full of special toys to play with the babies and grade them based on their responses. This one-month research was an invaluable opportunity to understand both rural culture and lifestyle in remote areas of China. I learned about the conditions and problems faced by Chinese rural families, what or where their parents work at, how the kids were being raised, and especially the connections between a child's intelligence and his or her living environment. Over the course of a month, I also became really close with all the Chinese students who came from various universities because we did everything together, from waking up early each morning, eating together, joking, analyzing data to midnight, and working closely as a team. Our research results were sent to both Stanford and Chinese universities, where experimental economies are working with the government to build childcare centers around the country to improve rural education. Hopefully our efforts will help open the door to a better future. As a student in China and a few researcher, I went through all four stages of observation, immersion, understanding, and integration. And this opened up a new opportunity to grow, connect, and contribute. My last and final story of culture hacking brings us to the faraway land of the Himalayas, a place called Ladakh in northern India where I've been running projects for the past two years. This region has been making headlines in the news recently as part of the land is disputed between China and India. Despite being controversial politically, Ladakh is extremely beautiful and close to my heart. I first visited Ladakh before going to Waseda University and was extremely attracted by its ancient culture, scenic nature, and beautiful people. After coming to Japan, I kept reconnecting with Ladakh, such as helping a local NGO school called Mahabodhi with copywriting and designs. This write-up, for example, was written to help them find more volunteers during the summer. During my search for more information to understand the local Ladakhi and Tibetan culture, I came across this amazing book, Ancient Futures, written by Helena Norbert Hodge, which I believe most of you have already read the preface. This book illustrates clearly how much we can learn from an ancient culture that is very much in harmony with its people and the natural environment. Helena Norbert Hodge is a Swedish linguist who had the opportunity to visit Ladakh when it first opened up to the Western world. And she had a glimpse of their lifestyle before capitalism was introduced to this part of the region. It was a utopian sort of society where people were quite happy with their agrarian lifestyle, living in big families where grandparents, parents, and grandchildren were very close to one another. The village people took care of one another as a close-needed community. Resources were sufficient for everyone's needs, and people were easily content with life. It was a circular economy in which things were continuously reused and recycled, and there was no plastic nor pollution. However, things started changing year after year, especially when more Western tourists and values of capitalism were introduced into the society. People began giving up their farms and moved from rural villages to the city to open up businesses. With the introduction of money and material goods, young Ladakhi started comparing themselves to others based on material possessions and money. Time, the amount of plastic waste produced is enormous. Some are burned, which can potentially cause cancer. Most are left untouched in the wild, and just a tiny portion gets recycled. I believe we have a similar problem not just in Ladakh, 
but in other parts of the world. Since publishing this book in 1991, Helena has inspired many local Ladakis to reform their local economy and change their approach to life. She has helped found several NGOs that are dedicated to the issues of sustainability and the preservation of local culture. What I've learned from Ladakh is that what is modern or quote-unquote developed may not necessarily be better. We should measure our economy not just in terms of GDP growth, but to take into account the well-being of people and the environment. From the book Ancient Futures, these are some of the values we can derive from a traditional circular Ladakhi economy. For example, self-reliance, frugality, social harmony, environmental sustainability, spiritual sophistication, and a circular economy. I love this quote by Helena, written in Ancient Futures. If our starting point is a respect for nature and people, diversity is an inevitable consequence. If technology and the needs of the economy are our starting point, then we have what we are faced with today, a model of development that is dangerously distanced from the needs of particular peoples and places and rigidly imposed from the top down. Since graduating from Waseda in the fall of 2018, I've been running a social business, Vera Life Academy, to bring people and students to the dock every summer on what I call a retreat expedition. As a yoga and martial arts instructor, I teach yoga and physical exercises every morning and bring students around different parts of Ladakh to observe the local culture and learn about sustainability. We made Ancient Futures a prerequisite reading material before coming to join our expedition so that people can observe and reflect on what they read and connect it with the actual experience. Here's a video to illustrate one of our most recent expeditions with a group of American students from Idaho, US, back in July 2019. If we can bring students out of the classroom and take them all the way to the Himalayas, what can they learn there? And how can we design and facilitate for them a life-transforming experience? In the summer of 2019, we brought 12 American high school students to Ladakh, India. We traversed across some of the harshest terrains on earth to reach remote farms and villages hidden in the Himalayas. Here they went through an immersive two-week learning experience to discover the ancient culture, nomadic pastoral lifestyle, and way of thinking of the local Ladakhis. We aim to make this program a lesson on sustainability to better understand our connection to nature and how life could be even happier without material access. To plant the seeds of mindfulness and nurture these students to become compassionate leaders. And finally, to build a bridge between these American high school students and local nomadic kids who have little access to the outside world. What would they learn from one another? And how would such an experience leave imprints on their hearts that would last a lifetime?
most important values and lessons in life are learned not through books and former education, but through life experiences. I highly recommend reading the book Ancient Futures if you ever had the chance, because it offers a deep insight into the Daki culture in almost every facet, from geography to history, philosophy, family, population, economics, cuisine, diet, traditions and culture, to architecture, tourism, and the mindset towards life. Take a moment to go through this lease when you're free and try to reflect on your own understanding of your own culture or the culture in Japan. How much do you know about the local geography here? And how does it connect to the local cuisine, to your diet, religion, architecture, art, etc.? So just to quickly wrap up my presentation today, observe, immerse, understand, and integrate. The more you integrate, the more interconnected you feel about everything and towards others. This is the basis of Kizuna. And along the way, your self-identity might even change. For me, as I integrate my experiences of a Western liberal arts education, my interest in Eastern philosophy, yoga, martial arts, and my cultural background in Malaysia, Japan, China, and the duck, I feel like my identity is always changing. Perhaps I don't even know what my identity is anymore. But at the same time, I do not feel like I need a single label to describe myself. The word culture is derived from the Latin colir, which means to tend to the earth and grow or cultivate and nurture. What really matters is what values have I nurtured? How have I grown or cultivated myself? And ultimately, am I feeling a sense of fulfillment? So last but not least, I hope that you bring home the values of oi and ui, observation, immersion, understanding, and integration. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the presentation. You can find the link to my personal website here at shareupgene.com and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions on social media or email. You can find me on Instagram at shareupgene, the same spelling, or email me at jinyanglim95 at fuji.wasida.jp or shareupgene at gmail.com. Ma, saigo made kite kurete arigatou gozaimashita. ぜひ気をつけてください。